Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of Tech Chat. Russ with you here, and I have Dr. Pete on the line as well. Hey, guys. It's so good to be back on the show. It feels like it's been almost a month since we spoke to you guys. All right, Pete, we've got a big show because we've got a lot of roundup items to get through. Let's kick it off with what's been happening region-wise. Well, if you haven't already noticed, when you log into the AWS console or do a describe regions for the APIs or the uh, command line tools, uh, we've now launched a new region. Ohio has gone live. This is actually adding in another region to the North American um, geography, uh, which gives us essentially five AWS regions in North America alone, with a total of 14 regions worldwide, which is pretty amazing because that takes us to uh, 38 um, AWS availability zones that are public uh, across those 14, which is pretty impressive. It is, Pete. One of the interesting things I think about this new region launch is that given its proximity to US East, there's actually very low latency between the two regions, I think around 12 milliseconds round trip. And um, the pricing actually mirrors the inter-AZ pricing for data transfer um, as opposed to an inter-region pricing. So um, you can kind of see those the, those regions there starting to to mirror that that inter AZ type of uh, type of approach. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, when you think about speed of light, um, you know how fast light travels. Yeah, twelve milliseconds is uh, essentially pretty close from an IT perspective. So yeah, having the the one cent per gigabyte pricing across regions. So normally it's a little bit higher than that, uh, but because it's so close to each other, um, yeah, we've managed to actually get the price incredibly low, which is uh, the first time I think we've ever done that. It is. Hey, talking about the speed of light, um, I was reading about uh, Grace Hopper the other day. Was it not her who pointed out she had this really funky way of trying to demonstrate to people how fast light could travel in a second? She did. She used to, uh, uh, all of the generals used to ask her, why does it take so long uh, for satellite communication to, uh, you know, uh, deliver a message from place to place? And she used to actually pull out a string and say, this is roughly uh, how fast light travels. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. And light, by the way, um, is the fastest thing, as you probably all know, that travels in a universe. But uh, um, electromagnetic waves actually travel a little bit slower than that. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, she, she was really famous for it. In fact, Grace, uh, unfortunately, hasn't been credited with this, but she was one of the first people who um, um, was associated with the idea of debugging in the early days when she was working with um, uh, technology. And by the way, uh, Grace was also an admiral in the U.S. Navy uh, when she was actually. Was worked. she really? She was. Yes, very, very wow. sophisticated. Wow, she's very accomplished. Oh yeah, incredible lady. Uh, so when she was working on the master computer in the U.S. Navy labs uh, back in 1947, which is way before you and I were even considered, uh, there was a moth that was stuck <laughs> in the relays. And obviously, back in those days, uh, computers were the size of rooms. And uh, you know, if you had something in between the relay connections, that would obviously be a bug. So when I found a moth. Uh, some people actually attribute the idea of debugging to her and her team uh, who came across this moth uh, short-circuiting a relay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. The other thing I love about her, I mean, there's so many things to love about Grace Hopper. She was incredible, but uh, she's credited with that quote that it's often easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission, which is one of my favorites of all time. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, they used to call her Grandma Cobol because uh, she was one <laughs> of the first people who ended up writing a compiler. So, wow, what a lady. 
That's awesome. Incredible, incredible. We should dedicate a whole show just to her. I think we should, but uh, that's that's the sidebar. Um, now, we came across Grace and we thought we'd mention it because this is in relation to the uh, blog post uh, from Jeff Barr around the uh, the Amazon EC2 P2 instances that have just been released, which are the largest GPU-powered virtual machines that we have in the cloud. Right. So we've got uh, GPUs on board as well as CPUs. Yes, and look, uh, we've had GPUs available on instance types in the past, but these things are very, very large. Um, so these new instance types um, incorporate up to eight NVIDIA Tesla K80 accelerators, uh, each running a pair of NVIDIA GK2010 GPUs, right? That's, that's a mouthful <laughs> with uh, 12 gigabytes of memory. So what that really means is you get about 2,400 uh, plus parallel processing cores, uh, which is how you get some really interesting... Um, you know, high-end computational grunt for doing a whole bunch of things like uh, deep learning, uh, fluid dynamics, uh, and some really sophisticated ways of dealing with, you know, high-precision floating-point calculations. Pete, I've told you before, I love it when you talk technical specs, but that was something else. <laughs> yeah, and look, we've got three of those. So we've got the P2 um, X-Large, the 8X-Large, and the 16-Large, um, and all of those... Uh, I also sitting on high performance networks. So I've mentioned in the past uh, the Elastic Network Adapter, which gives you up to 20 gigabits per second of low latency throughput when you're actually running your instance in a placement group. Uh, and that's exactly what you're going to get. The extra larges give you um, one GPU, but the eights and the 16s give you eight and 16 respectively of GPU power. So that's a pretty high end amount of um, you know processing power. Uh, these things can turbo boost to up to three gigahertz. And yeah, they support CUDA 7.5 7 and above, OpenCL, and the typical GPU compute APIs that you may have come across in the past if you've actually been playing with these things. Right, so really aimed at the, the kind of uh, scientific computing type of workload, if you will. Yeah, pretty much. And look, in parallel, what we've also done is release the, the new the new deep learning Amazon machine image. Um, this machine image is great to be able to run your, um, like I said earlier, uh, machine learning, uh, deep learning, computational fluid dynamics, seismic analysis, molecular mod modeling, genomics, you know, all the typical computational uh, workloads that you probably want to be running. Now this aim is available to be run on these uh, P2 instances. And they come pre-installed with a couple of really cool frameworks and libraries, in particular, um, the, this Amy contains um, the NIST database of handwritten digits, which is it's actually a, it's a subset of the main database, but it still has a training set of uh, over 60,000 examples uh, and 10,000 samples of, uh, of handwritten digits. So this can be used uh, to be able to, to train your um, machine learning. So we also have the MXNet library, which is a portable, efficient um, library for doing deep learning applications. And you can code against you know, that library in C++, Python, uh, Ruby, Scala, you know, MATLAB, JavaScript, all those fantastic uh, languages uh, and use the NIST data set to be able to uh, make inferences and come up with some clever discoveries. So how do you pronounce that? Is it because it's it's written M N I S T? Is it is it NIST or is it MNIST? Well, I'm just saying it NIST. Um, <laughs> I think I think when you say it fast, people don't know. Uh, look, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it. So uh, thanks for calling me out, Russ. <laughs> no worries. Well, you've got me all excited uh, with all of the that that scientific computing stuff. So I wanted to just. Um, Ask you if I could talk about uh, databases for a second. Would that be okay? I think I think it's a it's a prerequisite for the show, isn't it? It is. Now I want to ask you, Pete. How often have you been working inside a database and thought to yourself, "I would love it if I could break out of this database and 
call some other function, call to something outside of the database. You mean like calling from a stored procedure to an external function? That's kind of that's cool. Exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, lots of databases have had uh, triggers for a long time. So a trigger, if you're not familiar, is basically um, a uh, some kind of functionality that fires when you do an insert, an update, or a delete within the database. And then that can call things like stored procedures, which might have a block of logic in there that would do something within the database. And that can be extremely useful for certain types of processing, but you are stuck within the confines of the database. Mm-hmm. So what people really want to do is to be able to break out of that and actually then trigger something else outside of the database. So a new feature we've just added to Aurora is the ability to call out to a Lambda function. Nice. Yeah, now the way this works is that we will provide an inbuilt store procedure which does that that call out to the to the function. Uh, to the Lambda function, and then what you actually do is you will then write a custom store procedure which will call the the inbuilt store procedure uh, and uh, and go from there. Now, obviously, you're going to need um, permissions to call that function, so you, you'd set up a, a role through IAM um, to give your Aurora cluster that ability, but it could give you tremendous flexibility to uh, to act on something that's happened in the database and then reach out into um, into the world of Lambda. So I've got a question for you, Russ. So can that slow me down if I've got a Lambda function fired off every time I do an insert, for example? Um, what happens then? That, that could be that could get very slow. It's because generally uh, sprocks, when they get called, they're asynchronous. Yeah, so you have to be a little bit careful here. So the, the call from the, the stored procedure to Lambda is actually an asynchronous call. So there's no blocking there. But mm-hmm. if you're using triggers to call your stored procedure, uh, a trigger is a synchronous call. So if you've got a very write heavy type of workload, then that is something you need to take into account that there's gonna be a lot of work going on inside the database, but also it's potentially gonna gonna trigger a huge number of calls to, to your Lambda functions as well. So if you are using uh, triggers to, to fire that off, just uh, just beware of the consequences. But um, uh, but yeah, anyway, an interesting feature that uh, I think a lot of customers will, will be able to take advantage of. Any, any particular use cases you think would be um, appropriate here for the Lambda function? I mean, obviously get the idea of taking your business logic out of your database, which is always a, a good practice. Um, anything else that comes to mind that you could actually do in those scenarios? Yeah, that's a good question. So some of the things that customers have talked about, they've talked about being able to use it as a notification type of mechanism, um, either um, through SNS, for example, or maybe firing off an email um, if something happens. Um, potentially, you might want to update a Dynamo table or some kind of NoSQL database with something that's happened um, in your relational database. Um, or you can even use it to talk to CloudWatch as well. So if you had some metrics that you wanted to populate into CloudWatch, you could use it for that. It's one of those features where the sky's the limit, really. And I think once we put this into the hands of our customers, uh, that's when we really start to see some of the really interesting use cases as, as customers take that kind of core unit of functionality and then really run with it. Absolutely. And I also hear that there's some nicer integration now with S3 as well in Aurora. That's right. So so typically the way you'd load up uh, Aurora would be that you'd, if you had data in S3, you'd need to get it to an EC2 instance first and then load it up into into Aurora. So because of the the use of S3 being very pervasive, uh, I mean, amongst our customer base, we wanted to allow people to load straight from S3 into Aurora. So you can do that now. You can you can just fire off the the command, load data from S3 uh, as you'd expect. Um, and that will then allow you to then to then suck that data um, straight in. Cool. Very impressive. It sounds very much like what uh, we do with Redshift. 
That's right. Actually, very similar to Redshift. Um, there is an extra little bit of functionality too, which might be useful for some people, which you can also use XML there as well. You can actually say load XML from S3. So if the, the data that you're wanting to load into Aurora comes from some kind of system that's that's uh, spitting out XML, then um, you can do that as well. So my next question is, is there a load from JSON? Uh that is an excellent question, Pete. Not that I've seen, but uh, let me take let me take that as an action item. Is it is that future request? So, so there you go, guys. If, uh, if you have a future request, uh, don't be shy. Ping Russ <laughs> or any of the essays <laughs> yeah, that you catch up with. <laughs> cool. And that's that's a it's a nice extension. Lovely. So while speaking about data, um, I think there's some really cool things also happening with the EMR service, Russ. There is, Pete. So EMR, for those of you who are not familiar, is our hosted Hadoop solution. And uh, it's a very nice way to run Hadoop because we manage all the infrastructure for you, but it also has very close integration with S3, so you can keep your data in S3, and you can also make really good use of the spot market as well to spin up larger clusters than you would normally and, and obviously pay uh, much less than the on-demand price. Now, we, what we're introducing in, in this new release of EMR is some more encryption options for you. So for a while, we've had support for encryption of your data at rest in S3. Um, you can also encrypt the data within HDFS as well, which is the, the Hadoop file system. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, any data that moves between S3 and EMR is always encrypted um, by default. What was a bit more tricky for customers was the ability to encrypt the files on the local disk. Now, what we mean by local disk when we're talking in a Hadoop context is that Obviously, you have HDFS, which is the distributed file system that Hadoop uses, but there's also the concept of local storage on each of the nodes as well, which it uses for temporary temporary files while it's while it's doing its uh, doing its processing. Right. Um, so that um, that was often tricky to encrypt, uh, and the other thing was also data in flight between nodes as well. Um, there were different ways of doing it, and you had to set it all up. Um, uh, kind of on a on an ad hoc basis. So what we've done now is we've tried to pull all that together into a security configuration that you can set up with EMR. So what you do is you actually set the configuration up outside of an EMR cluster. So you do that through the console. And then when you create an EMR cluster, you actually then attach that configuration to that particular cluster. So obviously the, the, the idea there is that you would use uh, a configuration for multiple clusters. So you're not having to do this each time. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, so you yeah. also enable, you know, um, encryption, for example, in transit. That means I can also talk to other external things like Tez or Spark or perhaps MapReduce. That's right. Now, that's that's a good point because one of the things that often makes it difficult to do that in the data in flight between nodes is because of the different types of processing engines that customers are using. So, the three main engines in use at the moment within Hadoop are, are MapReduce, the the kind of the original, right? Uh, Tez. Which, um, which is in use for, with a lot of people, especially around Hive and Pig. And then obviously Spark is, is one of the, um, the biggest processing engines. So what we've tried to do is to make that easy for customers so they don't have to worry about which of those engines they're using. We will just put in place the right mechanism uh, to actually encrypt the data between the nodes. So within that security configuration that I talked about, you specify how you want the data at rest in S3 to be encrypted, how you want the local disk data to be encrypted and how you want the data between the nodes to be encrypted and we'll take care of uh, the underlying um, the actual implementation of that so um, really designed to just make it much easier for customers to, to introduce encryption uh, with their EMR workloads very nice and uh, I think there's also something else we're bringing up which is the HDFS to snowball migration options you want to shed some light on that for our listeners Russ 
That's right. So we've talked about Snowball before. So Snowball is the the big, meaty, 80-plus terabyte appliance, which we can ship to you if you've got a lot of data that you want to migrate into AWS. So we ship you the appliance, you then put your data on it, and then ship it back to us, and then we move that data onto S3 for you. Now, from the beginning, what you could do with Snowball was you could stage your data somewhere within your organization on some disk and then load it into Snowball. But a lot of customers said, look, I've got a fairly large Hadoop cluster on premise. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to suck the data out of HDFS on t- and Vino and find find some disk somewhere in the organization and then move it to Snowball. Right. Uh, what we'd love to do is just to suck it straight out of HDFS and onto Snowball. So that's what we've done with this with this new feature for Snowball is actually to connect directly to HDFS and then pull the data straight out from there just to save you that step of having to, to stage it somewhere. Um, oh, very cool. Uh, so if, you, yeah. if you're running shit on disk because you're running your cluster and it's uh, your volumes are pretty utilized, uh, you don't have to look for twice that storage anymore. You can just plug in the Snowball and uh, literally just let it rip from HDFS onto the uh, the actual appliance itself. Yeah, that's right. So which works with HDFS 2.x, mm-hmm. Pete. Uh, so if you're using HDFS 1.x, then you'll, you will still have to stage the data somewhere. Right. Um, so 2 but- onwards, we support it. Got it. That's right. Uh, and of course, then, so you put the data onto Snowball, ship it back to us. We will then load that data into S3 for you. And from there, obviously, you can either push it into um, another um, Hadoop cluster if you're using some kind of distribution on EC2, or obviously, you can use that data with EMR as well. So wow. yeah, another another nice cool. feature to help you to, to migrate data. So Pete, obviously, Snowball is all about moving data into AWS. What about virtual machines? What are you going to do about that? Well, funny you mention it, Russ. We have a new service that I wanted to announce, and that's called the, the Server Migration Service, or SMS. Now, what this is about is um, this service essentially lets you simplify and streamline the process of you know migration and ingestion of existing virtual appliances uh, that you may be running on-premise into EC2. So what it lets you do is it lets you to incrementally replicate live, this is live virtual machines, uh, to the cloud without the need for a really prolonged stretched out process. Yes, you could use S3, uh, you could do um, snowballs or ship um, disks to us via the import-export service, um, but nothing beats doing it live or as close to live as possible. So what the service does is it lets you automate, schedule, and track incremental replication of your volumes into AWS. So the service actually coordinates uh, all of the activities that are required as a part of doing the actual migration, which essentially is uh, you know, a number of steps that you need to follow through to get the migration of your data over to us. So the way this thing works is uh, you download a virtual appliance, uh, you install it locally on your virtual infrastructure. So this, in this case, it would be VMware. You log into the appliance and you configure it with IAM policies so that it has access to the service itself, as well as the to have permissions to be able to create S3, an S3 bucket. Once you've, once you've turned the actual appliance on, uh, you've configured it, it'll then connect to the SMS service. So you go into the AWS console for the service, and there you will start to find a live appearing inventory of all the virtual machines that you're running on your um, vCenter infrastructure on-premise. Right, right. And from there, you select which virtual machine you'd like to import. In fact, you can select a number of them and do it in parallel, uh, as well as schedule regular migrations of those volumes uh, over into AWS. And the beauty of that is as you migrate your virtual machine into AWS, it'll create an Amazon machine image. And it is that Amazon image that you would then launch 
uh, to basically be able to bring up your infrastructure. So that way you can gradually, as soon as you've done the first you know, sample migration, bring up those uh, Amy's, launch your EC2 instances. And these, these, by the way, can be Linux and Windows um, and see whether you, know, you are getting the results you're looking for. And uh, obviously, eventually migrate those, uh, hopefully from-prem into AWS permanently. Right. So what happens if you do another sync uh, after, so say you, you sync up once and then people use the machine and then you do another, you do another sync of that. Will mm -hmm. that create a new, a new AMI? It does. Exactly. So you, that's exactly what happens. So when you create a, a sync or when you schedule the next um, uh, migration of those volumes, uh, we create a brand new Amazon machine image. Uh, what's actually interesting, if you look under the covers a little bit, and I gave it away with the permissions, uh, if you look in the list of buckets that are uh, available to you in your S3 console, uh, you'll actually see another bucket being created by the uh, uh, service migration client. And in there, you will see all of the actual machines from on-prem being gradually uploaded uh, into AWS before they get ingested into the actual cert by the service and before they become an Amazon machine image. So that explained the process, it's re relatively straightforward. Like I said, it's, we support uh, Windows, Linux. Uh, you can all, also import Windows 7 through to Windows 10, uh, Ubuntu, CentOS, Debian, as well as, uh, you know, RHEL, so uh, Red Hat. Nice one, fantastic. Now, talking about Windows, Pete, mm -hmm. um, a little bird told me that you attended the PowerShell conference up in Singapore last week and you were on stage there. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, Russ. I was lucky enough to be invited to speak at the um, the Asian Conference for PowerShell, um, and that's organized by MVPs, uh, so most valuable professionals in the Microsoft ecosystem. So guys, well done for getting the conference organized. Uh, what was really interesting was that they're being hosted at the AWS Singapore office, which was really cool. Before I got up on stage, uh, Kenneth Hansen and uh, Angel Carvo from the um, Microsoft PowerShell team got up and they were telling everybody about uh, what's happening in the ecosystem around PowerShell. Um, and they were talking about PowerShell everywhere. And PowerShell everywhere is PowerShell on Macs and Linux, Russ. Wow, no. Yeah. Say, it isn't, say it isn't so, Pete. <laughs> That's right. This is not, your, this is, this is not, not what you were expecting. And uh, so being at <laughs> our offices and talking about open sourcing, PowerShell is incredibly uh, amazing, in my opinion. And as you guys know, uh, I'm a big fan of being a Microsoft developer and, and the tools. Uh, so when I got up on stage, which I was right after those guys, I was demoing the um, AWS PowerShell tools running on my Mac. Um, so wow. we now have, not only have PowerShell um commandlets to control AWS on Windows, but we've also now got PowerShell Core, and PowerShell Core is able to run on Linux, as well as Macs, as well as on Windows. Uh, so if you are so inclined and you like PowerShell, uh, you know you can go to the uh, Microsoft uh, PowerShell gallery and uh, look it up, or from the command line in PowerShell, just you know do an install module, AWS PowerShell.net Core, uh, and then input the module, and you be you can actually use the uh, PowerShell commandlets uh, across all the platforms, um, like you have done in the past, which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Um, just on, just uh, continue on about Windows. We've got some new uh, Windows versions on EC2 available now. We do. So the eagerly awaited Windows 2016 server is out now. Uh, so only a couple of days after Microsoft announced its uh, global availability, uh, we made it available on EC2. So if you want to run 2016 server, or in fact, want to have a play and experiment with the Windows Server Nano, uh, that is also available on EC2. And Nano is an interesting server because uh, that product line boots in a handful of seconds. It is incredibly fast. And uh, if you want to 
uh, use that server. You can play with it today, uh, whether it's for spinning up containers um, or doing you know other things. Uh, you can't actually really log into it. You can for some basic administration, but everything you do with it is done remotely. So by having PowerShell core available cross-platform, you can now manage nano servers um, from platforms other than Windows. Wow. Yep, it's a very different world, Russ. Uh, cloud is changing everything. My it is indeed. <laughs> now, uh, I'm not quite sure how to segue from from uh, Microsoft across to C++, but um, let's do that. Let's talk about the, the new SDK for C++. So for those of you who've been playing with the early access to it, um, it we've now shipped version one. What that means is it's ready for production use effectively. So if you have used the SDK for a while now, then you know you should find that you should be able just to get the SDK and there should be no code breaking changes to your applications. So that's what we talk about when we call it. There's no semantic uh, versioning issues coming along. Uh, we've also provided uh, support for our client to transfer manager. Uh, the build process that uh, you may have followed to build the application uh, has been also improved to make it easy to override platform defaults. Uh, we've also made it simpler to make the uh, configuration management easier uh, so that you can do it at runtime. Uh, we've also added support for encryption, uh, essentially so that you can bring your own encryption libraries to uh, do your own crypto, which is very cool. Oh, and nice. for very those nice. of you, uh, again, to circle back to uh, uh, the Microsoft developer ecosystem, um, we now also, as of recent, as of this release, uh, are pushing out the SDK as NuGet packages. Uh, so C++ and NuGet packages. So if you are working Visual Studio, um, building your applications, if you just jump into the manage NuGet packages um, uh, manager in the tool, uh, you can very quickly go and find the SDK and include it in your project. So lots and lots of cool improvements um, in this um, very cool language that some thought may have died, uh, but it has not, just like a some of the uh, the social media second death syndromes that I've been hearing about recently. <laughs> that's that's funny you should mention that because C++ for me is, is quite a nostalgic language because that was, uh, I learned that at uni. It was one of the first languages I learned. And one of the textbooks that we got was written by a guy called Dennis Ritchie mm. who uh, who wrote Linux and also the original C. Uh, and so when you, when you were talking about C++, it reminded me of him and the fact that uh, – there was a lot of um, social media um, uh, outpourings of of, uh, of respect um, respect uh, for the fact that he uh, he died last week. Um, but he except, didn't. of course, that he <laughs> that he didn't. Um, he had actually died in 2011, uh, and as you say, he was a victim of the um, social media second death syndrome, <laughs> where somehow whether through some automated system or whatever, um, an obituary gets published and then it gets kind of picked up in the echo chamber that is um, social media these days. Hey, this, this episode is becoming very nostalgic, you know. We're talking about, you know, all of these people that have been such huge icons uh, in the industry. That's true, Pete. That's true. We haven't covered Alan Turing yet, but maybe we'll leave him for another time. <laughs> yes, you're right. Now, look, while we're talking about developers and uh, DevOps tooling and so forth, um, so coming back to the, uh, the main show now from our segue, um, CloudFormation updates. Uh, there's been a, quite a lot uh, added to CloudFormation. And as you guys know, CloudFormation is our service that actually helps you to rapidly define and provision and deprovision um, lots and lots of AWS resources rapidly. Um, what we've added now is um, uh, provisioning aliases for AWS key management services, for KMS. So you can now create aliases and display them. Um, we also have added support, better support for uh, spot instances. For example, you can now specify a bid price for a specific instance type that you want to provision using the spot price property. Um, we've also added greater support for um, EC2 container service. 
So you can create um, uh, an ECS uh, service cluster. You can now specify the IAM roles for ECS. Uh, so those APIs can be called as well as uh, register task definitions uh, to a specific family. Uh, in fact, we've also got additional support for Elasticsearch. Uh, whereby you can specify which version of Elasticsearch uh, you would like to spin up, right? So oh, nice. uh, That's quite very a few nice. things and uh, there's um, a whole raft of other things in a developer ecosystem, but we just don't have enough time in the show. We don't. We don't. We must We must move on. Indeed. So what about IPv6, Russ? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, well, uh, how how to segue into a you know a, a very minor topic, Pete? Uh, <laughs> there couldn't be anything bigger coming down the pipe than IPv6. Um, the interesting thing about that is that um, we've been talking about it. The industry's been talking about it. I think we ratified the protocol in in 1998. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been a while. It's been a while uh, a while coming. Oh, actually, I, just just to reminisce, actually, I uh, I wrote an article for PC User back in '95, which uh, I actually discovered PC by accident. Ex- yeah, discovered by accident uh, uh, when I googled myself, which you shouldn't do. Um, those photos just don't go with me anymore. I've uh, gained a few more kilos, but uh, you know, it, I was talking about it how we're running out of IPv4 addresses back back in '95 um, because you know an IPv4 address is only 32 bits. Which, which when you think when you did a math, uh, that's not a lot of addresses. Given that some of those ranges uh, are not usable uh, and potentially um, limit the address space, so we've done really well to last, you know, way you know, a decade plus. Um, you know, when we actually realised that we had a problem. That's right. It reminded me a little bit actually of the the original Y two K issue, where you know a decision was made at some point. You know, how much capacity do we need? Uh, and people said, yeah, let's. You know, I think you know, I think thirty two bits. Is, that's um, that's going to do us fine. That's going to give us billions of addresses. We're never going to need more than that, surely. Well, well, uh, well, well. Imagine how you would define big data if you had 640 kilobytes of memory, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> On the V6 stuff, um, basically, we've um, made a whole bunch of recent announcements, Russ. Um, starting with um, uh, our uh, DNS queries now being able to uh, be resolved via V6. So I know we've had, uh, um, you know, for uh, quad a records for quite a while um but now we've actually provided a whole bunch of support for uh, ipv6 also for things like s3 um, mm. and the idea is that uh, obviously when you work with ip addresses which are 32 bits uh, you also have to get used to potentially working now with a 128 bit um, address space so uh yeah you know yeah. there's a couple of things that would be worthwhile talking about um, for example, you know how you even reference those addresses, uh, and the the DNS piece is pretty pretty critical because um, you know humans work well with words, hence DNS. Uh, working with thirty two bit addresses is obviously challenging. Working with a uh, one hundred twenty eight is uh, certainly a lot more complicated. Um, so you certainly may want to consider things like you know even a loopback address in IPv six. Um, is essentially all zeros with a one at the end, mm. uh, not mm. the 127.0.0.1. Uh, so you need to get your head around those. Even when using things like browser references to an IP address, ideally you actually have to map them in in, uh, in square brackets. Um, and there are lots of different conventions for removing leading zeros because you use, um, and when you describe an IPv6 address, you use eight groups of four hexadecimal digits, uh, which are separated by columns. So it can be quite daunting when you first look at IPv6, but a lot of that stuff does go away if you start to use um, the DNS for resolution. It's a, it's a whole new language almost, isn't it? It certainly is. Uh, I certainly had to uh, brush up on what IPv6 was because, uh, uh, yeah, like yourself, back when I was at uni, um, yeah, I was looking at IPv6 going, wow, this stuff is cool. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, I get the feeling that um, that it's starting to gather steam now. It is. And look, a lot of um, organizations like government departments are quite often define as IPv6 as the minimum um, protocol mm. that they're going to use moving forward from now onwards. So so recently, so besides DNS support and um, our recent announcement around Amazon um, uh, Simple Storage Service. So you can now access uh, you know, S3 buckets via IPv6 via the new dual stack endpoint. So when a DNS lookup is performed on an endpoint, uh, it either returns an A record, on, which is an IPv4 address, uh, and then uh, a quad A record, which is an IPv6 address. So depending on the naming convention uh, that you reference, uh, and the way you do that is uh, simply in the middle of the, the reference to the, uh, to the service, you would actually put in uh, .dualstack.amazonaws.com, uh, usually after the bucket. So right. uh, you need to get into a habit of now considering to going back and reviewing the uh, connection strings that you've built into your applications, which I'm hoping are not hard-coded, uh, so that you can then rapidly um, reference those endpoints via the new naming convention. Uh, and automatically, most likely, your operating system will resolve those to the appropriate v4, v6 or a v4 uh, address endpoint. So, mm. yeah. No, that's great. Because there was a couple of other additions we did to CloudFront and WAF, as well as the S3 transfer acceleration as well, didn't we, a couple of months ago, I think? Yes, we did. Um, but before I go on to those, I just, just to share a couple of things to consider uh, when it comes to using IPv6. And that, for example, with S3 as an example, um, if you have bucket policies that restrict access based upon IPv4 address ranges, uh, yeah, you may need to go in and update uh, the desired new IPv6 ranges to make sure those endpoints are still protected or, in this case, accessible. Um, but also be mindful that even though you may change some of these, um, you may want to talk to your internal IT networking groups uh, to better understand whether IPv6 is supported end-to-end -end in your organization. Because uh, some customers actually have IPv6 enabled within the organization, um, but when they exit via the internet gateways out into the, uh, the interwebs, uh, they might be running IPv4. So while you're trying to resolve and access things, you might actually find that um, um, you are actually still running on V4 across the across the net. So right, right. So yeah, there's a whole yeah whole host of things to be considered there. But yeah, but to back, back to your question earlier around CloudFront, yes, done some really cool stuff with CloudFront. It supports IPv6 as we've just mentioned. Um, now, if you've already got an existing CloudFront distribution you do have to go into the console or programmatically um, and enable the IPv6. For new CloudFront distributions, uh, we turn on IPv6 automatically for you. Ah, okay, okay, that's good to know. Yes, so do it programmatically, do an inspection if you have lots of distributions, uh, or if you've got a handful, simply just uh, you know, hop on the console and have a closer look. Now, even if you do enable IPv6, um, if the client does connect using IPv4 or it resolves um, to the A record, then you will still connect via IPv4. So be right. aware that okay. we will okay. we will service the request based upon the IP stack that it's coming from. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. And while we're talking about CloudFront, uh, for those of you who may have missed it, uh, we've also have support for HTTP2 uh, in CloudFront. We've added a couple of extra edge locations, so a second edge in Atlanta, Georgia, a second edge in uh, Asia Pacific, Mumbai. Uh, we've added two new edges also in Frankfurt, that's in Europe, which is awesome, which now has five edge locations, um, which actually brings us to a total of uh, 63 worldwide edge locations for CloudFront. 
which is oh, uh, very nice. Yeah, much, much bigger. And also, while we're speaking of IPv6, um, this is now going deep, <laughs> deep, deep into plumbing. Um, when you look at your access logs for CloudFront, um, uh, in the actual uh, log entry, um, the third tag in there, which is the X edge location, has the edge location that your connection is coming from. Um, and I was talking to somebody recently, uh, and they were asking me, what are those values in there? And I said, ah, oh, that's easy. That's the edge location name. Um, and they were saying, that's an unusual convention that you guys are following. And the answer was, we use the uh, international airport codes uh, for our, for our ah. facilities, for our data centers. Right. Yeah. So yeah. when you actually look at the edge locations, um, if you want to know roughly which one you're coming from, and hopefully that's implicit, but if you don't know the uh, international codes by name for the uh, airline <laughs> industry, um, go and Google uh, the international airport IATA code. And uh, that's essentially a three-letter um, you know, code describes the actual airport and the number is just our, 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 our arbitrary um, number that we've allocated to that particular edge location. So. Right. So listeners, uh, I'm not sure whether when you got up this morning you were thinking that at some point in the day you're going to be taken deep into the weeds of IPv6, but, um, th- but there you go. <laughs> we took you there anyway. <laughs> and look, while I'm talking about these logs and we're deep into plumbing, uh, also think about, you know, when you do your analysis um, of your S3 or our, our CloudFront access logs, which are like I said, IPv6 enabled, um, you know, make sure that, that your tools are you know, IPv6 aware. You know, it's pretty important to be able to know uh, when you're parsing those to make sure you know, your apps and your third-party tools are still fully functional. Um, think about the um, alias records that you're using. Uh, so go into uh, Route 53 and make sure you have created an IPv6 name alias because, again, if you're creating aliases for CloudFront, uh, these are very important. Um, but if that was enough, uh, Russ, we've also got support for uh, WAF uh, as well too. Right, okay. So... If you're doing uh, running WAF rules for IPv6, again, you may need to go in and update the IP rules uh, to make sure that you whitelist or blacklist the appropriate IPv6 addresses. Um, and also be aware that, uh, again, uh, deep into plumbing, uh, when you see you know <laughs> forwarded headers and things like that, um, you know we might be passing things like uh, IPv6 addresses. So uh, yeah, I guess the key message here is go back, think about um, the log files as well, because if you want to do analytics or see what's happening to your infrastructure, um, you want to make sure that uh, you're getting the right information. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, thanks, Pete. That was a, that was a lovely little journey into uh, IPv6. Thank you, thank you. And, I, I and enjoyed I'm, that very much. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm almost done there. And we've also got support for acceleration. So the S3 Transfer Acceleration Service also supports IPv6, right? So, uh, you know, this is the service that gives you between 50 to 500% uh, increase in uploads into S3. Um, once again, in order to use that service, you need to basically rename the uh, uh, the URL, the uh, the address. So normally you'd have something like bucket.s3-accelerate.amazonaws.com. Um, and you'd simply replace it with bucket.s3-accelerate.dualstack, and dualstack is the, the keyword here, dot amazonaws.com. So remember, uh, if you do want to leverage the IPv6 functionality in your applications, it simply is just a matter of going back and changing and looking at the connection strings and DNS records. So uh, yeah, bit of a journey, Russ. Fantastic. Yeah, we covered S3 Transfer Acceleration, I think, a couple of shows back. Uh, but a great service, especially if you're looking to upload data into a different region. Um, doesn't really work if you're trying to upload data into the 
the region closest to you. But if you're trying to go across um, across regions, it can can really uh, speed things up. Yeah, absolutely. And Laz, Russ, I'm looking at the time, and wow, we're already out of it. Um, so I hope we guys uh, covered some really cool things for you in this roundup. We did. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining us, and uh, look forward to hearing from you again. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again next time. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.